You are listening to the Parkview Church Podcast. To learn more about Parkview Church, including our gathering times in Palm Coast, Florida, visit us online at parkviewlife.com. We are continuing our series in Exodus, um, and I'm really excited about this. I uh, was a youth pastor for a couple years, and then um, we planted a church in Orlando a couple years ago, um, and uh, I had a long time where I was just preaching every single week in, in some capacity, um, and then we, came, we moved here, and for the last six weeks, uh, I have not preached and um, I, was, I was doing okay. had a lot of other things to worry about. Um, and Pastor Greg called me and said, Hey, man, I know you haven't preached in a while. And I was like, I know. He goes, How are you feeling about that? I was like, Man, I'm, I'm good. Like, I, I feel like refreshed and all that stuff. And he said, Can you preach this Sunday? And I'm like, Yeah, absolutely I can. So uh, here we are. I'm really excited. Question for you. I'd like to open things off with a question. How many of you in here love chaos? Anybody else? All right. Uh, not a lot of people, minus one, love chaos. Uh, chaos is chaotic, right? Not a lot of us in here like zero plan, zero vision, zero structure, zero organization. We all in some way, shape, or form like that. But at the same time, there is something, and maybe you know this, it's like in our DNA, we love the spontaneous, right? We like those moments where there's a little bit of spontaneous in our lives that make us feel like, like we're alive, right? The other week, um, we had, me and my wife, and we have a um, kind of a meal plan for the week, and so we go and buy groceries accordingly. Uh, but the other night, um, Lauren and I, we looked at each other, and we're like, what if we just go out to eat? I'm like, yeah, we can do that. Let's go out to eat. We went out to eat, and um, our boys were still wide awake and they were about to go to bed soon. So like brilliant parents, we said, let's go get ice cream. So we went and we got ice cream and then we got home. Uh, the boys had a sugar crash and so they, they crashed hard and went to bed and it was a fun night. Like we actually, we, we enjoyed it. In fact, prior to going out to eat, we went over to the park and let our boys run around. It was a fun night that was not scheduled. Now, that spontaneous night, we look back like, that was a fun night. I'm so glad we did that. You know what we didn't do the next night? We didn't look at each other and go, hey, we, I know we got groceries in the fridge, but let's go out to eat again. Let's go get some more ice cream. Let's go to the park again. And then the next night after that, we're like, hey, let's do this instead. Hey, let, let's, and there had to be some Structure. And while the spontaneous is fun, if spontaneous becomes normal, it can actually be draining. It could be draining for, let's say this, obvious number one, your finances, right? You haven't budgeted for it, right? We just, we haven't saved up for it, but my wife and I, we're going to sandals for a week. Why? We're spontaneous. We're fun. We're free. But who's paying for it? We'll take out a loan, I don't know. We'll, we'll have fun. And while it can be fun, it can be draining. Draining to your finances, draining towards your energy, right? You come home, you had a, a long day at work, and you both decide, let's do this, let's do this, and there's no recharge time. It could be draining for a number of 
reasons, but at the end of the day, if you live in the spontaneous without any structure, your whole life would turn and be, let me say it this way, chaos. And in Exodus chapter 18, we come upon this scene where things are chaotic. So if you have your Bibles, flip there, phones, swipe there. If neither, it'll be on the Sky Bible for, for you. So Exodus 18. Exodus 18, there, it's chaos on this scene. So just to set a little bit up for you, Israel has just defeated the Amalekites. We learned that last week in Exodus chapter 17. Moses raised his hands, um, and as long as his hands were raised, Israel won. Two men came beside him, held his hands up, and Israel won the battle. They just defeated the Amalekites, but they haven't yet reached Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, which is where we're going to be next week. And for the beginning of chapter 18, we have this—it's a weird chapter— it, it really is this odd chapter in the book of Exodus. Let me set it up for you a little bit. Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness for years. After he was the prince of Egypt, he was the shepherd in the wilderness, coming back to be the savior of Egypt when he walked into the uh, courts of Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He was a shepherd. He came back. On that transition while he was in the wilderness, he married an individual, had two boys with this person. And on the way to Egypt... God sent, after the burning bush, him and his wife get in this fight. Now, it wasn't a silent treatment fight. It was a, I'm dropping you off at your father's, and I'm leaving you while I go to Egypt type fight, okay? Now, here's what you need to know. When Moses dropped off his wife and his two sons and went to Egypt, there is no FaceTime. There are no there are no uh, text messages. There's, there's, there's no U.S. Postal Service. There's nothing like that. All they know is our dad, my husband, is going to Egypt to tell the king, essentially the king of the world, Pharaoh, that he needs to let these people go. I don't know if we'll ever see him again. Ner uh, uh, news gets to Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, that the Egyptians are in the wilderness being led by Moses. Jethro takes Moses' wife and his two boys, and they're on their way. Moses gets word of this, and this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 18, verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro... Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Moses' father-in-law was the leader of this group called the Midianites. Now they were not followers of the one true God, the God of Israel, our God. They've worshipped different gods. They sacrificed to different gods. But in this moment, imagine Moses explaining all that God has done, Right? Dude, you would not believe this. I walked in, frogs, out of nowhere. Okay? And on top of that, this and that and this and that. I put my staff in a river, river turned to blood. 
what? Yeah, I came upon the Red Sea. What happened? Egyptians are at our backs. Yeah, put my staff in the river. What happened then? Red Sea parted. No. Yeah, and here we are. What? That is wild. I thought you were going to die. I did too, but then God this, God that. God did this, and then God did that. And in that moment, Jethro makes a sacrifice to God and says that God of Israel is the one true God. So Jethro does not know this God. He hears the testimony of Moses and ends up getting saved in this tent the first night with Moses in this great reunion. How awesome is that? Now, like most father-in-laws, he sticks around. So, (laughs) Moses' father-in-law is this leader of this group of people He lingers around and he sees Moses later on in this chapter trying to be the voice of God, the judge of God, and the law keeper of God. To what, 10 people? To 2 million people by himself. You think you have a crazy schedule? Think again. But again, like most father-in-laws, this is the last father-in-law joke, without prompting, Jethro gives Moses his, his advice and opinion, right? Exodus 18, verse 17, jump down, it says this. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. Again, you are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and which they must do. Moreover, look for able men. Look for people, for men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over all people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let's break it down. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide amongst themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own country. Let me write this down for you. Moses' father-in-law, hears that Moses is in the wilderness, he shows up, gets saved, gives advice, and dips. That's what happens. Moses listens to this advice, implements that device, and it was actually really good advice. And you say, what does this have to do with us? This random, odd passage in the book of Exodus is actually crucial for you and for me. Here's why. Exodus 1 through 17, the chapters, is all about the slavery of Egypt and God bringing the people out of Egypt. Exodus 19 through 24 is all about the Ten Commandments and God establishing the law. Exodus 25 through 41 is all about the establishing of the temple and all the ins and outs that need to go with that. Notice I left out chapter 18 because it doesn't fit. It doesn't. When you look at it from a thousand foot view, it doesn't fit. But we have to have chapter 18 in order to have 19 through 41. 19 through 41 
hinge on chapter 18. For before there can be instruction, there has to be structure. Before there can be instruction, there has to be structure. In order for the Israelites to move from lost and wondering to knowing what holiness is through the law and finding holiness in the organization of the tabernacle and the law, there has to be a structure, an organization process in place. It cannot be spontaneous and chaotic. It has to be, there has to be structure. And this is important for us today in this way. How many of you have heard this phrase? I hear it a lot in my age bracket and in my generation. But I do also hear it a lot in ripple effects and other age brackets in different directions. It it's, goes something like this. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I am a follower of Jesus, but I don't attend nor am I invested in any local church whatsoever. I love Jesus with everything and I accept his salvation, but because of the church did X, Y, and Z, I now resist and rebuke the church. And it has become this odd trend in the American church that we love Jesus yet don't like church. It has become this thing where we love to follow Jesus and maybe, maybe you're attending the church with even some hesitancy and you always are alert and aware that if the church does even the slightest of things wrong, we're out. And I am not saying this in a way, if you have experienced church hurt, which many of you have, I have grown up in the church. Well, I, we were a thrice to thrive type, type family, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, right? I was at all three. You say, I've heard horror stories about the church. Let me tell you this. Most often, and I'll be brutally honest, they're probably true. I'm being honest. They're, they're probably true. But here's what I know. The longer I follow Jesus, the more I'm in the church, I've experienced church hurt, but the longer I follow Jesus, and the more, the more I commit my life and my family's life to the local church, here's what I know. That Jesus established and loves his church and we must do the same that Jesus established and loves his church and we must do the same Ephesians 5:25 says this Christ loved the church and gave himself for her there's another verse in John 13:35 it says this by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another Meaning, if you want to call yourself disciple, then you must love his church. For what is the church? Really quick. The church is not an event you attend. It's a community you belong to. And in the New Testament, we see God establish his church. For there had to be structure before instruction. There had to be the Gospels before there could be the book of Acts. Right? There has to be a structure. This can't just be a spontaneous, do whatever you want and feel is right type of faith as following Jesus. There is structure to it. There is structure to it. In the New Testament, again, we see God establish his church to represent and advance his kingdom in this broken world. There are a couple of thoughts we get from the book of Exodus that also, when we look at it through a New Testament lens, post-death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that we can take uh, truth from, some observations we can take truth from. The first one is this. The church is God's organization to usher in salvation and sanctification. In almost every developed country in the world, 
the United States has an embassy there. Do you know what an embassy is? Do you know what an embassy does? The U.S. embassy there does not operate by that country's laws. It is a sovereign little piece in that country. And an embassy doesn't represent the country it's in. It represents and operates like the country it belongs to. The nation of Israel is supposed to be, in the Old Testament, the standard of living, the standard of morality. They follow after the one true God, the God of light, the God of truth, the one who is not the author of confusion. They're supposed to be the standard. Now, we know time after time again, they fail, but God established them through structure and instruction on how to do so. In the Sermon on the Mount, we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus gets on this mountainside, and he begins to give one of, arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. And here's what he tells all of those who would follow him, including you and I today. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. Now, in the original Greek in which Jesus was, was in when it, uh, it was translated, here's what you need to understand. In the original translation, it says this. You are the only light of the world. The only city on a hill. The only salt of the earth. That's a lot of pressure. But I think sometimes you and I don't understand the function or our purpose here. I, we may not say this, but I know a lot of Christians who behave like this, and your behavior will often influence your belief. I, how many of us live and act as if we're waiting for the day where we get on social media or we open up the paper or we flip on the news and we see Jesus Christ is in Palm Coast on Tuesday evangelizing and winning people to Jesus. Right? Like we're like, yes, he's doing it. He's winning people to Jesus. Go Jesus. Whenever that's not how we operate or that's not the message of the New Testament at all, nor is that Jesus' message to his followers. Jesus' message was, I'm leaving. And I'm leaving you here. And I am not saving you to silent you. I'm saving you to send you. For you are my organization in which people will come to know me. Because here's the bottom line. Nobody else is coming for the lost people. Nobody else is coming for them. For when Christ returns, he's coming as king and conqueror. He's not coming as an evangelizer. That's yours. That's your job. That's my job. Because nobody else is coming. And if somebody wants to know Jesus, they should not look further than the local Christians in the area. We, 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 and, I, and again, I, I love the ambition and I love the drive. But I know of a lot of believers, and this, I, I'm not talking to you. Y'all are perfect, right? No, I'm not talking to you guys. But I know a lot of people that's like, we need to reach the nations. What's your neighbor's name? I don't know. The, people will reach the nations. There are people that we fund to go out because they're called to go out. But if you're not called to go out and you feel called to stay in Palm Coast, you're called to reach Palm Coast. Don't worry about reaching the nations when we can't even reach our neighbors. 
That's our job. For we are the only ones coming for them. And eternity is too long to be wrong. They need Jesus. So Trey, that is a lot of pressure. That's a lot of weight. It is. But also know this. Second observation from this passage. That God's mission is too big for one man, which is why he charged all of his followers to carry out his mission. I was a... Um, a barista almost my whole way through college at a coffee shop called Eliano's. I think we have a picture of it. Cue slide. If not, there it is. All right. So that is actually the one I worked at in Jacksonville, Florida. Shout out 904 Duval County. Uh, I, I worked at this place. As you can see, it's drive through only. Now there was one morning. Um, I, uh, by the way, we were the most profitable Eliano's coffee shop uh, in Florida. And there's a lot in Florida. Um, not to brag, wasn't me. Did I give out a lot of free drinks? Yes. Who cares? I worked in that coffee shop, drive through only. We opened at 6 a.m., so I had to be there by 5.30, come 5.45, 5.50. I noticed I'm the only one at the store. There's supposed to be three other people working with me because mornings are absolutely hectic in the coffee world. Come 5.55, still just me. There are three cars on each side at both windows. 5.59, I'm hanging in the back. Like, the windows are up here. I'm where you can't see me. I'm just like, dear God, please let somebody open the door now. Nope, okay, now, no. 6.01, I'm like, I gotta start selling coffee. So I walk up to the windows. There's 10 cars on each side at this point. And I'm just going. I'm cranking them out as fast as I can. If I see somebody's car in line and they're regular and I know they're drink, I'm getting started. I'm doing my best. I did so good that in 15 minutes, there went 10 cars on each side to 12 cars on each side. Couldn't keep up. <laughs> and people are like getting mad. There's a, <laughs> if you do this, shame on you. There was a lady in line, six cars back, who got out of her car, walked up to the window, and I was like, I'm by myself. She goes, <laughs> and walked back. And people were mad until they understood I was by myself. And when they, under, when they saw that I was by myself, they were still a little frustrated, but not at me, but at the manager who didn't schedule anybody because I may or may not have thrown him completely under the bus, every single customer. <laughs> Finally, 6.45, I get a helper. And then another helper comes in, and then the manager finally shows up. I finally got your text. Are we good? I'm like, no, sir, we're not, right? <laughs> Those of y'all don't know, these are, this is hair plugs. This isn't real. No, I'm just kidding. This is real. <laughs> I, I was so overwhelmed in that moment. I couldn't keep up, but people were understanding, but they were still frustrated. Moses, in this moment, is ministering to two million people by himself. He's overwhelmed. He's, he's frustrated. He doesn't know. He, he's, and the people are like, listen, you're doing great. You let us out of, the, out of Egypt. You let us through the, the, the sea. We're, we're here. You're doing great, but we're dying. And he's like, I'm dying too. So what do we do? Insert the father-in-law. Moses, I've led groups of people before, and what you're doing will not work. 
You need more people. And here's a free leadership lesson for you. If what you're leading is reliant on your energy, then you will only go as far as what you can do rather than what others can do. So if you're putting in 20 hours a week and whatever you're doing, and you're just white-knuckling it, doing yourself, that's all you're going to get. You're going to get the results of 20 hours a week. But if you can bring three people along beside you and they're doing the same as you, you know what you're doing? You get 80 hours a week of work done for whatever you're leading. We need more people. Moses, you need more people. You will burn out. Your people will be miserable. You need leaders. Leaders that are on board with what God is doing, not trying to do their own thing and lead a coup, that are on board with the structure and the organization in which God is implementing. For this is too big for one man. You need more help. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is traveling, and he sees the crowds, the flocks of people following him, and Jesus stops, and he looks at his disciples, and I have to imagine he has tears in his eyes. He goes, do you see them? My 11, do you see them? Yes, Jesus, we see them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're oppressed. They're desperate. They're dying. Their souls are destined towards a place called hell, separated from me. They have no hope, which is where we get this famous verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There is not a harvest problem. There's a labor shortage. And that has to break us. Knowing that there are over 100,000 people that live near or greater Palm Coast area and Flagler included. And there are 1,300 people that call this church, church home. Six figures either for sure don't attend church or don't know Jesus. There is not a harvest problem. There is a labor shortage. And send out the laborers. Our church needs more people who are willing to say, I can't reach Palm Coast, but I can reach my neighbor. I can't pastor a church, but I can teach a kid. I can hold a baby. I can lead teens. I can hold doors. I can make coffee. I can take out the trash. I can serve, give, lead, invest, and build. Because what a privilege and joy it is that you and I get to be part of an organization that will far surpass my lifetime, my son's lifetime, my grandkids' lifetime, my great-great-great-great-great-grandkids' lifetime, that the mission will remain the same. And I have such a small part to play in God's overall story, and that is redeeming the whosoever's unto himself. And this is too big for me, which is why I am privileged to be part of a church community, a local church like Parkview. This is too big for one man, but no role is too small in it. So what do we do? We be, be someone who grows in the church, get involved in groups, get involved in serving, and then be someone who grows the church. Be someone who grows in the church and be someone who grows the church. And so Moses does this. He implements this new system. He is willing to change because what once worked no longer did, which leads me to my next observation from this passage, that God's people must be willing to change their methods in order to accomplish its mission. Ouch. We don't like this one. We don't like change. Nobody likes change. Right? There's a reason, like, 
2% of iPhone users get the brand new phone the day it drops. And like 75% of them get them a year after. We don't like immediate change. It's scary. We, we, we're not huge fans of it. I still wish that Wendy's still had the sunroom. Right? Like, who likes that Wendy's? I loved that Wendy's. I don't know where, that's not even in my notes. I don't know where that joke came from. That's a deep-rooted issue, apparently, that I have. I want the old Wendy's. Neither here nor there. God's people must be willing to change their methods in order to accomplish its mission. You know what's going to happen in December? This church is going to change. That building over there that you see in construction is going to open up. And this building that many of you either got saved in, have had life-changing experiences in, have had countless encounters with God in. You've seen your kids come to know Jesus in this room. Your teenagers come to know Jesus in this room. This will no longer be the room. That will be the room. But thank God that the church is not walls, it's a community. Thank God the church is not an event you attend, it's a community you and I belong to. And no matter where we meet, God will be present. And what we're doing is we're making room. Did you know at almost every single weekend at the 11 o'clock, we have to turn people away? It is, there's no more room. What a great problem to have. And what a great opportunity for the church to find a solution to fit more people. There will come a day where what we're doing, where the lights and the smoke, right? I don't even know if this is haze. I think it's Alex smoking his vape backstage. No, I'm just kidding. He's not just kidding. <laughs> there will come a day where this doesn't work and we pivot and we move. I grew up in a church where there was flowers along the front where the pulpit never moved, where the worship leader stood behind the pulpit, opened up his hymn book and led from here and it worked. But we're not married to that. Culture shifted. And so did us. Because we're there to reach them. And there will come a day where I don't even like the music we play and sing. But my son will. My grandson will. And I pray I'm at the point in my spiritual maturity where I go, it may not be for me, and that's okay. Because it's for them. They are the whosoever's who aren't here yet. And I pray that that's where we get to as a church. We're not married to the method. Because when we become married to the method, that's where churches physically die out. But when we become married to the mission and we date the method of like, hey, I'm willing. Hey, listen, discipleship groups, Sunday school model, all of that. It used to work. It doesn't work anymore. We're going this way. Because whatever it takes short of sin, the church has to be willing to do and pivot in order to reach the 100,000 plus people who do not know Jesus in our community. We have to be married to the mission. Moses took what one, he, you know, Moses was a shepherd in the wilderness. That's all he knew how to do. So out of Egypt, he's like, guys, follow me like a shepherd does. And he led them to this point, and God's like, great, they're delivered, they're redeemed. Now what? Well, what once worked no longer works. So we have to do something. Moses, you can't act like a shepherd anymore. We have to have structure in order for me to give instruction. 
We have to have this in order to have that. Are we willing to be like that? I'm not married to a style of music, a way of discipleship, a style of preaching. I am married to the gospel of Jesus, and I will do anything short of sin to stand in the gap of those who are on their way to hell. Which leads me to my fourth observation, that God's church is not a monument that was built and supposed to stand still. God's church is not a monument. It is an unstoppable, eternity-impacting movement. In the nation of Israel's history, do you know how many times they lost a battle whenever they were following God and his instruction? Zero. They found themselves in trouble whenever they stopped following after God. But when they were following God, they were an unstoppable force. They could not lose. And that is a small picture of a greater picture of the church today. For Matthew 16, 18 says this, You are Peter, this is Jesus talking, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what gates are designed to do? They're not designed to attack. I've never walked up to a gate and a gate punched me. <laughs> right? Anytime you walk up to a gate, you have to figure out how to either go through it, go over it, or go around it. They're meant to keep things out. And in your, maybe in, in your street, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your city, in the state, there is places where the enemy has said, I claim this as broken and fallen territory. They do not know Jesus. Their life is chained by addiction. There is, the enemy has built a gate around them and said, you will not find redemption. But if you and I know that Jesus established his church, loves his church, and has equipped his church to be an unstoppable movement, guess what you and I should be doing? Knock, knock, here comes the unstoppable force called the local church to break strongholds, break chains, and see the captives set free in this city. For we are an unstoppable force. When I was in seventh grade, I played football. Uh, I didn't want to play after that, but my dad made me in eighth grade. It was good for me. In seventh grade, though, there were three guys on that team who were similar positions to me uh, that ended up all going D1. And if you know anything about athletes, you know if they're going D1 from an early age, right? They're just, they're different breeds. I'm not a D1 athlete, if you can tell. I, uh, did somebody say amen? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, we, there's this drill in football called the Oklahoma drill. If you know it, you know it. If not, I'll explain it real quick. What you do is I hold a football, I lie on my back, somebody else is lying on their back over there, there are uh, pads right here to give us a runway, coach blows a whistle, you get up as quick as you can, and you run, and whoever runs over the other person wins. That's the drill. Really great, really fun, except it wasn't, because on this side were the bench warmers, and on that side were all three D1 future athletes. My coach, blow the whistle, I'd get up, and with everything in me, guys, I mean, I promise you, I mean, I ran, and I, and I you get low, and you explode up. I mean, I would hit this dude, and I would fly that way. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd get it, and I'd get up, and like, back of the line, get back of the line, my buddy gets obliterated, my next buddy gets obliterated, my turn, I get obliterated, 
I get to the back of the line. I kid you not, one of my best friends, I just got there with him the other night. We were talking about it. I watched him. I'm standing. I'm next in line. He comes walking here, and he's crying. He's like, I can't do it, Trey. I can't do it, Trey. And I'm like, keep it together, man. We're going to run if you keep crying. And I, I, there, I actually, like, I, I tried. Like, it wasn't like I wasn't trying. With everything in me, I wanted to, but there, come a point, there came a point where I realized something. If they're operating at maximum capacity and I'm operating at maximum capacity, there is a different level to us. They win every time. I could not stop them. With, I mean, I planted. I tried. I, I mean, I worked on it. But I could not stop them. Here's the point of that story. If the church is operating like it's supposed to operate, we are seeing those, the whosoevers of the world, come to know Jesus. We're inviting people. We're serving. We're in part of discipleship groups where we are being edified and sanctification is happening inside the local church like how it's supposed to. When we are operating like we're supposed to and the enemy comes up against us, we win every time. The enemy will sink its feet into the ground and they're saying, we're doing what we're supposed to know. We're trying to confuse. We, here's what the enemy does. We're trying to disrupt, divide, deunify. We're trying to discourage, but here's what they can't do. They can't defeat. And so it will get low. It will ready to explode up. It will do everything it's supposed to do. Lie, all of that stuff, but it cannot win. If the church is built upon the gospel and married to the mission, understanding we love the local church and we are a movement that cannot be stopped, not a monument to say, come look at our righteousness. It's to say we are a movement of broken people saying, look at his righteousness and what he can do for you. We are an unstoppable movement. There was one time the apostle Paul, he frustrated people so much. There was one time he was arrested, and they said, we'll beat you. He goes, awesome. I rejoice in suffering for the gospel. Well, we'll throw you in jail, and I'll win all the guards to Jesus. We'll kill you to live as Christ that I has gained. Like, it frustrates the enemy. I want to be a church that frustrates the enemy. A church that says, I may not see victory on this side of eternity, but I know even in death, the enemy has lost, and Jesus has won. That even in suffering, God will receive glory, for it is for my good. That even in what feels like oppression, there is still a message in the mess that God breaks chains. And if we have that mindset and view God's church like that, we will see revival like never before, for Jesus is still adding to his church because of the boldness and faith of his followers. We're Jesus followers. You know there's more than 11 disciples on this planet today? That when Jesus charged, well, the 10, you know there's more than 10 disciples on the planet today? Or 11? Yeah, let's go 11. (laughs) There are. Those 11 disciples just didn't Disciple one, and then they died, and that was like, finally, there can be another one. And then they discipled, and then, no, there were 11 disciples who started a movement because they had this foundation of faith and mindset of the local church to which now 660 million evangelicals called home today. How did we get there? Any golfers in the house? I'm going to end with this story. Any golfers in the house? Okay, a couple, a couple of you. 
I recently got bit by the bug a little bit ago. Here's what I know about golf. It's an expensive sport. Um, I didn't know that going into it, but then I was like, hey, you want to play a round of golf? Sure. How much is it? Ah, it's like 50 bucks. What? (laughs) That's where the spontaneous stuff gets you. (laughs) But imagine we're on the golf course, and I say, hey, let's make things interesting. Let's play for $100 a hole. What? No way. All right, my bad, my bad. Let's play for $50 a hole. Can't do it. All right, let's do this. Let's play for 10 cents a hole, but every hole it doubles. Well, I'm no math genius, but that's got to be like $1.80 by 18, right? Hole one, 10 cents. Hole two, 20 cents. Hole three, 40 cents. Right, not breaking the bank. I really, I, if I saw 40 cents on the ground, I may just walk on by, right? Maybe I wouldn't, I don't know. You need 25 cents to get into Aldi's, so maybe I'd pick it up. <laughs> hole four, 80 cents. Hole five, $1.60. By hole nine, you're at $25.60 for that hole. By hole 13, if we keep on doubling it, we're at $409.60 for hole 13. By hole 18, the last hole, we are betting (laughs) $13,107.20. Now, let's do this with Parkview. If we have 1,300 people here this weekend... And this year we say, hey, listen, I can't reach the nations, but I can reach my neighbor. Great, you've doubled yourself. We will have 2,600 people here next year by this time. Already close to outgrowing that building. And the year after that, 5,200 people will call Parkview home and their lives have been forever changed because of the disciples of Jesus who are willing to say, I can't do much, but I can reach one. And we just continue, and we continue, and we continue, because we are an unstoppable movement. How did we get there? Because there is no job too small in the kingdom of God. There is no serving opportunity beneath you. There is no text to invite someone too meaningless. There is no person too far gone. There is not someone who is worth the awkwardness of knocking on their front door. Everybody is worth it. Jesus thought, thought so. And Jesus is building the church he established and loves. He gave his life for it. And he wants you and I to do the same. I'm all in. My family's in. I know many of you are in. But if you're not, my prayer is that you will say, I love Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I love his church. Is it perfect? No. Absolutely not. If you found a perfect church, you just ruined it by walking in because you're not perfect. (laughs) Jesus gave his life for the local church. He is building his local church and he is looking at his local church and saying, and I want you to do the same. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I love you and I'm thankful for you. Thank you for Exodus chapter 18 and the fact that we need structure before there is instruction. God, this lie of the enemy that you can follow Jesus without loving his church, God, it's it's too common. God, I know hurt is real. I know leaders have abused power. God, I, I know that there is brokenness in churches all over the world. 
But God, I, I pray that because you gave your life and you even put the 11 who were wildly wicked and broken in charge of establishing and starting the church. God, how awesome is that? How encouraging is that? That if we walk in and say, God, we're broken, we're messed up, what can we offer the church? Your life. For your word says those who lay down their life will find it. So God, I pray in this moment that God, those who are on the fence about being all in in the local church, who are on the fence about joining the local church, who are on the fence about making the local church a regular part of their schedule throughout the week. In this moment, through your divine persuasion, through the Holy Spirit, that you would supernaturally reconvince and reconvict us that this is where we belong, that we are supposed to grow in church and grow the church. Give us the love that you have for the church and that we may take the church out of these walls and go on mission. And God, that the city of Palm Coast would be forever changed because Parkview said, we can't be stopped. There's no door we won't knock on, no person we won't text, no serve opportunity we won't jump on board. Nothing is beneath us. No person is too far from God. And no church can be stopped because of who is at the head. Jesus, that's you. So we love you, we praise you, we thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.